Today, I bring you part one in a three-part weekly series on digital education. And joining us is Dr. Mary Burke. She is one of the nation's leading experts in digital learning, and particularly in the realm of equity in digital learning and equity in learning at large. And she's joining us to tell us all about it this morning. Thank you so much, Dr. Burke, for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you on our show. I am honored to be here today. Thank you. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. You have clearly a lifetime at this. Tell us how it all began. My adventures learning how to advocate for equitable education for all actually started when I was a little girl in the late 1950s. My father was working in the southern states in manufacturing plants, and I'm from Oakland, California, and he would come home on weekends and talk about how he had to drink in a white designated water fountain while his colleagues, who were identified as black employees, had to drink in a black water fountain. And then he described what the bathroom situation was like and all of the other types of eating facilities and everything else. And he was absolutely disgusted and became actually a civil rights advocate within his company, fighting these injustices because it did not feel right to him. And we were from the Bay Area where many, many social action crusades were occurring. So in my primary grades, I also found that I was a student with special needs, not diagnosed till much later. I had an auditory discrimination problem. And so when I was in third grade, my teacher taught me to not try to sound out words, but to memorize hundreds of words and the spelling of those words. And although I could not pronounce them correctly, I did learn to read through memory and sight and became very dependent on visual learning, which is a very important way to learn when auditory doesn't work for some students. And I still use those devices today. So that was another example of equity from special needs of one student versus the more global ways of teaching other students. When I started high school, I joined a Red Cross board. And I actually work with students with special needs as an advocate for them. And also, I served the Vietnam veteran amputees at a naval hospital and provided various support services to them. So another level of equity with people with special needs. When I volunteered in schools as a parent, I suddenly found my calling in life. I decided I wanted to be a teacher. I was so passionate about helping parents out who did not know how to access services, and I became an advocate actually writing legislation and bringing it to Sacramento, and many years later, it did become a funded bill, and so at that juncture, I was invited to be a parent education teacher without sufficient college units, and so I had to go back to college with young children. And when I started teaching as a parent education teacher, I was mostly working with families who had recently immigrated from Asian countries. I had parents who were refugees from the Vietnamese countries. And I also had families who worked part of the year from Mexico. And these families were saying, our kids go to American schools. How do we access services? And then my colleagues said, don't tell them the ropes, they'll take away from our students. And immediately, my gut reactivated to that. 
And I said, wait a minute, this is not fair. We need to take care of these students, which led to me getting a doctorate degree years later. And I started a VISTA project, which is basically a Peace Corps American, within America project. And I was the director of a parent engagement initiative, which led to lots of books, lots of teaching, and lots of advocacy. And I'll elaborate on that as we get further into that discussion. And that's where I am today. Tell us a bit more about this VISTA Charter School Project. Right. So when I did my dissertation at University of Southern California, I wanted to work with traditional public schools and helping them actually become fully successful with parent partnerships. So what we did, first of all, is we did an assessment of what does a a healthy school environment look like? And we looked at different types of walkthrough types of activities overall at the school. What is the overall layout of classrooms for the students? What do desk layouts look like? What is the equipment availability, technology access, access to supplies? What do the textbooks look like? And we were teaching parents how to advocate for their children in partnership with the school leadership and teachers. What do supplementary resources look like when families come to the school? What's adequate training for the parents? Do they need translation services? Do they need guidance on how to access basic needs for their children? What does mentorship look like, not only for the students, but for the parents? And what does supplemental educational training look like for the students as well as the parents so they can help their children be successful? We also looked at administrative support. We looked at student accommodation for limited English-speaking children, for children from low income or who were homeless, and special needs for children who were underachieving. We looked at school and community safety programs and partnered with various safety agencies and community-based organizations as well as the police departments. And we also looked at parent community support. So that was all part of our grant, and we wrote, millions and millions of dollars. I think we've raised over $200 million in these types of programs over the years at different levels in different school districts all over the state. And so once we started looking at all of those things, we would train the parents to not only help the children academically, but to be true partners in their children's learning. And these parents became parent leaders through the VISTA project and actually trained other parents how to be partners in the school academically, bringing in resources. We wrote a book about simplified grant writing, how they could all get together and leverage resources through their committee and also build partnerships and then build mentorship programs where the students could initially, as younger children, do community-based projects with their families. And now we have some amazing partnerships for our middle and high school students that we've continued to work with over the years. Tell us about what some of those programs look like today. So right now, we're going to fast forward to distance learning. And one of the administrators that was working with me back in the elementary school days in the early 2000s is now an executive director of a cluster of charter schools in Southern California in the Los Angeles Unified School District. So what she did when she designed these charter schools was she really, first of all, decided to work with the teachers to get the 
teachers fully engage with the parents. So when the parents come to these schools, they sign a contract saying, I'm going to work in these schools. I'm going to be part of the partnership. And they have a very intensive training for the parents that we started back in elementary school on how the parents can really partner with the schools in all the areas I just described. In addition to that agreement, the teachers are very focused on project-based learning. All of the students have computers. All the schools have connectivity. And this holds true even now as we're going into the distance learning remote classroom way most California schools are functioning and these schools are functioning. So when everything gets tough with COVID or anything else, these students don't even stop for a second. They just kept going. They are used to working with computers. The parents are used to supporting their students with computers. They have built-in services. And so let me describe exactly what a day looks like in that school. The kids go online about four or five hours a day, and they're working through their different classes in middle and high, and they're project-based learning. So they have projects where they get into breakout rooms and they strategize, and then they go off the computer and they work together and finish their projects that all are tied to the common core standards. If a student does not show up for class, they have an aid that supports every teacher in every online class. That aid immediately communicates with the parents, and the parents are used to this. This, you know, and they immediately get accountability with their child, saying, "You need to get back on, and you need to be doing this." So this is a real partnership. And then, in addition to that, they have after-school homework clubs. They do social-emotional social activities. They have all kinds of community-based types of things. One of the teachers, he's an amazing science teacher at the high school, and he has the kids actually investigating and research what is COVID, how can we make our communities healthy, and then he has these students actually create posters and online resources that families can access through community-based organizations and they work with these community-based organizations and they do presentations with the different families in the community about how to learn how to get a COVID vaccination or whatever else. And so that's just one of many examples of what he's doing. In the English middle school classes, we have the nano writing contest, which is a way that people can write a novel and within basically a month. And they've scaffolded it down to a smaller novel. But these kids who are primarily not English speakers or have not had traditional success in traditional classrooms are writing these novels. And it has become a huge success story for these kids. And they are so proud of themselves that they've achieved it. And they work in partnership with each other. They're peer editing they're applying all kinds of common core standards, and they're so proud of themselves. And I actually have gone to these schools and interviewed these kids, and they make it such a tremendous celebration at the end of the year. They invite the board from the schools to come and hear these kids present their novels. They, Some of them actually buy them. Um, I know other schools where they actually work out an arrangement if they have the funding and get these actually published so the kids can sell them at book fairs. And so this is an amazing achievement. Some of the other things that they do is they have, just like being at school, Spirit Week, and they do all these little contests online. We've written a, 
a lot about this in our Gen Parenting blogs online. So there's more information for parents that are interested in seeing how these students really excel and the parents really partner and continue their partnership with the schools. And when you say Gen Parenting, I want to make sure everybody knows that it's like Gen Z or Gen X. It's Gen Parenting. We are speaking with Dr. Mary Burke. She's one of the leading experts on digital learning, remote learning, distance learning, and she's here to tell us about that today. So, Mary, if you don't mind giving us the the website so people can go there if they want to learn more, and, and we'll keep this conversation going. Yes, yeah, so the website is Gen Parenting. It's spelled G-E-N and then parenting, P-A-R-E-N-T-I-N-G dot com. And it's a short version of generational parenting because it doesn't just take one person to nurture and raise children these days. It takes the village. And so we felt generational parenting or gen parenting really represented what our bloggers are all about. And we are a group of 10 bloggers, culturally diverse from very different parts of the country with very different professional experiences, all educators, all parents, and some of us grandparents. So tell us a little bit about the best practices for parents to consider when they're dealing with online schools and and things that they need to look out for to advocate for themselves and their children. Well, that's a really great question. So to prepare for this interview today, I actually went online because I'm witnessing, and I myself am a Google Classroom tutor and substitute teacher in an elementary school site. So I know what's working for us, and we actually are be having a future interview talking about some of the best practices as far as teaching strategies. But what parents need to look at when they're looking for an online resource, there is a Facebook support page called Parent Support for Online Learning. And then linked to that, there's actually a study that just came out called Parent Support for Online Learning, as far as one of the partners of this study that that has been in existence for several years, and it's the Snapshot 2020, a review of K-12 online blended and digital learning by the Digital Learning Collaborative, and this is their annual report. And actually, part of my job when I was working full-time as a Santa Clara County Office of Ed Administrator was to visit charter schools as part of my oversight in looking at the quality of the educational programs. And we had several that were basically online primarily or as a hybrid model partly. And so this was of incredible interest to me. And they are stating that there's hundreds of thousands of people that are actually served in these schools. And Nationally, I was really surprised how much this particular movement of blended and online learning has changed over the years. But some of the best practices, there's 15 here, and I'll summarize some of them. Um, One of the things that when we talk about equity, we need to make sure, number one, the students have sufficient technology. And most of the schools are issuing Chromebooks for younger children, computers for older children. And then they actually cover the cost of the hotspots or the Internet subsidiary, whatever they need to have so the child is online. And they also have a special tech support. And this is holding true with the district I'm working with right now. We have all these things happening for our students. So if a parent's having trouble online, there's two things they can do. 
they can immediately put in a fix-it ticket directly with the check department for the school district. In our case, we also immediately have the parents notify us, and they, in my situation, they will actually text me and say, oh, this is what's happening. How can you help me? And so what happened was when I started in this, I had to re-change my whole way of teaching. And so the district actually certified us through professional development modules to be Google Classroom teachers. So I have to actually know how to help families and teach the students how to use the various resources online. And what's awesome is I am working with second grade students right now, and at this juncture, they are teaching each other how to use the Chromebooks. What was difficult for me is I'm working on a PC in my home that is a Dell product. These kids are on Chromebooks. I don't have a Chromebook, so I don't have the same commands as they do. So I talk them through, and then they talk each other through. It's amazing the way we work with each other. And then the kids actually are understanding now how to upload their work. They're creating online portfolios. It's amazing what these students can do over a period of time. But we started with absolutely no knowledge of any of this besides going online and doing what they normally do in the classroom, maybe reading um, from a particular software application. So this is a huge game in their knowledge. Another thing that they need to do is understand online curriculum and how it's used. And so this is my greatest area of challenge, concern, because a lot of the software programs, in my opinion, are not user-friendly when we look at the needs of the English language learner, of a student that has a particular style of learning, such as a visual learner versus an auditory learner, and a kinesthetic learner. Oh my goodness, if a kid is always wants to play sports and has to be put online in front of a a reader, online reader, and then has to read those words. I work tutoring-wise through all those obstacles, really trying to build each student's success, self-confidence. I can elaborate on that later. And so that can be very difficult. And I think a lot of the programs are not giving students sufficient rest between their different applications. So the student is basically either becoming incredibly addicted to a super high-charge type of activity or they're absolutely shutting off the computer out of boredom and exhaustion. So it's finding the balance and keeping the students engaged, which is the area I really work in. And then we have to look at how the schools are supporting the social-emotional and readiness of the kids every day online. We do a whole hour every day with second graders. That is our priority. And the school has adopted a specific curriculum, and we're using I Am A Leader, and it's all on best practices of really effective strategies to be successful. The kids write personal mission statements. They have their goals. They have their milestone achievements. It all goes back to their own self-assessment. We look at the attendance policy. They have to show up, and we know when we lose kids and we have our phones available and we're texting the parents, where's your child? We're on top of it. We also have special accommodations for English learners and those with special needs. And so they receive added supplemental services. And then we look 
at the diagnostic tests and assessments and aligning those to what we're actually teaching, which can be a tremendous challenge because all of a sudden we're on digital learning and sometimes the digital programs don't completely align to the textbook we have or to some other material that we have previously been teaching. So we're having to bridge those alignments, which, I mean, this is just a whole other world of learning. And then we also look at how students are going to earn their college credit. Right now, I just wrote a blog about what happens when a student can't show their traditional leadership skills and they have to write their college apps. I did one several months ago on this also and how they can get work experience as a volunteer for a community-based organization by just doing some work online. And then they can show that as their leadership. And then we look at how can they have access to their honors courses, college courses, advanced placement courses, gifted and talented, and also how they work at their own pace. So we look at a lot of different things. And like I say, these are highlighted in a little handout on the parent report for online learning website. And then parents who really want to learn more about resources can be part of that Facebook support group, which is pretty interesting. It's a one-page handout. It's beautifully laid out, 15 key points. And, of course, I elaborated on all of them, but it was outlined so articulately and succinctly and really about equity. What would you say would be at the top of the list when it comes to what parents need to know? If they, if they are given, say, three primary concerns, what, what would you say those would be? There are three observations I suggest parents should use when evaluating a school, a program, or a service to support their children's learning. First of all, I would focus on, is this a welcoming environment for that specific family's needs? Is the program have sufficient software, sufficient connectivity, or supplemental technical support services for that family? Can the child work with the environment if their parent does not have sufficient skills to support their technological needs or academic learning in the classroom? And what supplemental services will this school use to accommodate that child? So welcoming environment is one. Number two, what will the school or the service provide training? And what type of training will they provide parents? And finally, how is the child and the parent going to partner with the school from start to finish so at the end the child owns their learning, they are able to set their own goals and objectives and demonstrate their accomplishments successfully? What are the primary resources where parents can go if they're in a situation that is not equitable? There's always various different community-based organizations that are targeting specific communities. So some are targeting like parents of particular cultures and they have an education person typically that will help walk the parents through. They can always go to the school's district office or to administration and they have always somebody in a position to help a parent get the resources they need if they're not getting what they want. And then Library resources will help parents as far as giving them books and other types of CDs and things they can listen to to help them understand how to advocate for their children. Those are three really simple ways that parents can get help. 
You know, one of the challenges that I faced as an instructor uh, for online learning this last summer was the connectivity issue. And there's just, it's a problem in New Mexico. And that is really true. And the superintendent that I work with, Yvette King-Burg, does record all her courses so that if there is a problem, the teacher assistant along with the teacher can sit down with the parent and they can listen to the lecture with the student and walk through it and then identify where the student is having challenges. So we do record many, many of our classes. When we're trying to model and teach parents a new strategy as well as other teachers, we record our work also, and then we use it as part of our trainings for the other teachers and other staff. So we use recording. We'll bring you part two of this series next Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021.